This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hi there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And also here in the studio, Josh Taylor. Hello. It's been six months since Russian forces attacked Ukraine. How has the war affected Ukraine and Russia when will the conflict end, and how will the world have changed because of it? For some answers, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, we have just crossed the uh, six-month mark, as you said there, with Russia's full-scale war of aggression on Ukraine. It was February 24th when those Russian tanks first rolled across the border. And uh, I think it's easy to get a little bit numb to this since it's been underway for so long now. But we really are living through some just momentous history with this war. So I wanted to go through just a few numbers here, some hard numbers that I think show the staggering impact that this war has had so far. The first number is 13 million. That's how many Ukrainian citizens have fled their homes during this war. That's of a total pre-war population of 44 million, so well over a quarter of the country. Uh, half of those have left Ukraine altogether, and the other half are displaced within the country. But this has created Europe's largest refugee crisis since World War II. So it's having just a major impact on Europe, including the European economy, at a time when that economy has already been under strain from, from other factors. The next number is 5,600. 5,600 Ukrainian civilians have been killed in the war so far. That's according to the UN's Human Rights Office. And then 9,000... Ukrainian soldiers have been killed so far. Meanwhile, more than 45,000 Russian soldiers are believed to have been killed so far. So these are just some, some very sobering numbers here on both sides, and that doesn't even include the thousands and thousands of wounded. That's amazing. That yeah. really is a phenomenal. I guess the disparity between Ukrainian and Russian losses is quite quite striking. Right. And Russia doesn't publish their official uh, figures for that. So these that comes from uh, Ukrainian intelligence, and it's not necessarily confirmed. But it is believed to be accurate also by U.S. intelligence. Uh, the next number is 20. 20% of Ukraine is now occupied by Russia. And Ukraine's a huge country. So this totals about 47,000 square miles that Russia now controls. That's the same size as the state of New York here in the U.S. And uh, it is true that the Russia-controlled area has not really grown much since July when Ukraine acquired the HIMARS rocket launchers from the U.S. But it's still a huge amount of territory that they have there. The next number is 66 about 66% of the world's population is concentrated in countries that have either supported Russia's war or have sort of tried to remain neutral by refusing to condemn it. So this, to me, is a discouraging and just kind of a sobering number to see um, because it's just such a glaring act of evil. And you would think that the nations of the world would recognize that evil for what it is. But two-thirds 
of the global population are in countries that don't. Most of those are in China and India, sure. but there are uh, you know dozens of other nations who are supporting Russia to varying degrees as it just continues this wicked war of aggression. So anyway, those are those are just some figures that help to kind of quantify the last six months of fighting. They help us to see how significant the impacts of this war are becoming. There was a uh, Ukrainian member of parliament this week who said, in the last six months, we've lived six years. Mm-hmm. And when you, you know, when you consider these sobering numbers, I think it's easy to see why that is the sentiment for many Ukrainians. So looking forward, um, is there any indication that this might actually come to some kind of a conclusion? It seems like um, we're at quite a, a stalemate on both sides. Yes, it has. Uh, you know, the the line there has not changed much for for a good six weeks now. Um, but on Thursday, I think we got a very interesting piece of news that could cause some major changes. This was when. Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, he signed a new decree that will increase the size of the Russian army by 137,000 uh, soldiers. So this would boost the number of combat personnel by about somewhere around 12% and bring it to 1.15 million troops. And so that means a total military headcount, including administrators and other non-combatants, that would be just over 2 million. So. You know, there's a bit of a risk in this for Putin. He has tried really since the beginning to say that this is only a limited special military operation. He's refrained from calling for complete mobilization, but he has really tried to uh, insulate the Russian population from the costs of the war in a lot of ways. But this new decree, this new decree could be viewed by many as kind of an admission that his designs on Ukraine have gone off course. And now more Russians will be paying the price with the lives of their sons. So it's hard to know if and how quickly this decree will become a battlefield reality. Uh, But we do know that Putin recently said, quote, by and large, Russia hasn't even started anything in earnest yet. End quote. So he's he's saying there he's just getting warmed up in this invasion. And this new move to expand his armed forces could go just a long way toward helping him to kind of unstall the the battlefield situation there and bring the violence up to the next level. And the Ukrainian president, he, he has also maintained uh, admirable defiance in the face of uh, of all of this Russian aggression. He doesn't seem ready to back down. Yeah, he refuses any sort of a a truce or ceasefire unless it's on Ukrainian terms. Because he understands that if that happens on Russian terms, Russia will keep the area that it's occupied mm. and then just, you know, give it a couple of years so that it can regroup and then just take the rest of Ukraine quickly. So that would basically be a death sentence for Ukraine. So I think it makes sense the fact that he's refusing to enter into any sort of negotiations unless those are on his terms. We're, we're coming into the fall and then the winter months. And uh, what is your perspective on, on whose favor this, this plays into? Is there, uh, does this actually work to, to Russia's advantage as it's going more into the cold? 
I believe it does. Yeah, we, we know that one of the major factors that's been enabling Ukraine to resist Russia for these last six months has been support from its partners. And many of those partners are in Europe. Uh, several European nations are refusing to buy Russian gas and oil. They're also supplying Ukraine with weapons and aid of all kinds. But this is really wreaking havoc on their economies. Energy prices are at record highs. And with winter now approaching, the situation for Europeans could get much more difficult. There was actually a Reuters report this week quoting some Russian sources familiar with the Kremlin. And one of them said, it's going to be a difficult winter for Europeans. We could see protests and unrest. Some European leaders might think twice about continuing to support Ukraine and think it's time for a deal. And then one of the other sources said he has noticed that Putin already believes he's starting to see breaks in European unity. So he thinks that some European nations think that it's time to just start to pressure Ukraine into a truce so that they can kind of get back to buying cheap energy from Russia. Um, U.S. General Ben Hodges also spoke about this this week. He said, war is a test of logistics and it's a test of will. The test will be, do we in the West have superior will to the Kremlin? I think this is going to be the challenge. And, you know, I think especially with winter approaching, that challenge is going to get more and more difficult. We'll have to see what the various European nations do, especially Germany, which has been pretty erratic in many ways throughout this war. But if the Europeans cave in and pressure Ukraine to accept some sort of peace on Russian terms, that could be just a real catastrophe for the Ukrainians. How do you view this uh, prophetically? Well, one of the big questions that a lot of analysts are asking as this war continues on is if Russia might use its nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, the way the Russians have kind of faltered and they've been even humiliated in, U in Ukraine, it's easy to see why Putin might feel compelled to really pull out the big guns to kind of reestablish his, you know, his claim on having a ferocious military. Um, and Russia does have some stunning nuclear power. They've got about 6,000 nuclear warheads. And then also, if you just zoom out a little and look at the broader world, you see Russia's main ally, China, building up its nuclear arsenal and its weapons. Of course, Iran now, as I understand it, is just a decision away from having a viable nuclear bomb. Then you've got Germany, Japan, South Korea, Saudi Arabia. They're now all openly talking about the need to develop nuclear weapons programs. Um, and I think that all of this, when you look at all this together, it does just expose how unstable the global peace is and how quickly it could all combust. And if you look at Bible prophecy, there are several places that prophesy of another world war that will soon erupt. And it makes plain that it'll be so devastating that it will have the potential to obliterate all human life from the planet. So from that detail, we know that that's talking about a nuclear war and nuclear winter. So we, we do know from prophecy that Russia will not be the nation that sparks that, but Russia will enter into that war and play, to, play a lead role in it. So it's, it's very important, I think, to understand these passages. And Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has written a booklet all about them. It's called Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door. And he explains what the Bible warns about in, you know, in this approaching war, but he also discusses a lot about the hope that's linked into all of this. So there's a lot of hope and, and a great deal of good news in that booklet, too. Okay, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Jacques. 
After its prime minister resigned last month, Italy is now just one month away from fresh elections. At this point, it's looking like this vote could produce a real political earthquake in this crucial European nation. To learn about this, we'll go to Richard Palmer. That's right. When uh, we first had these elections called, we talked about how it looked like the brothers of Italy would come out on top in these elections. Now, that's pretty shocking because the brothers of Italy trace their descent via a kind of a refounding and a party rename uh, back to Mussolini. They are the modern successors of a party started by Mussolini fans in 1946 who wanted the fascist party to continue. And you know, we talked at the, at the start of this whole Italian election story about how remarkable it was that they could win. What we're looking at now is it's starting to seem like the question is, will they win a two-thirds majority so that they can change the constitution? Wow. Now, of course, it's not just them alone. Uh, the way Italian politics works is everyone kind of enters the election as part of a coalition. So it would be a coalition led by them. Uh, and part of the reason for this is just within the last couple of weeks or so, the opposition, one of the main opposition coalitions has split. And Italian politics and the electoral system is ridiculously complicated. Uh, but over a third of the seats are allocated by first-past-the-post voting. So, you know, you will pick your favorite coalition and whoever gets the most gets that seat. So if your main rival is just split in two, that gives you a massive advantage. You know, if you're polling on 30% and your rivals combined are polling on 40%, you lose that seat. If they split in half and get 20% each, suddenly you win. Yeah. So this has been a, a big shot in favor for the brothers of Italy. Then what they've also had is kind of one of the senior members of Berlusconi's cabinet join them, uh, the, someone who was a longtime finance minister under Silvio Berlusconi. And this has been the problem for a lot of parties like the Brothers of Italy. They've not been in government before. They got something like 4% in the last election. So that, that's a real kind of difficulty for a lot of people. Can we trust these guys that have no experience? Well, this does start to add some heft and some experience to them. So they've seen a, a pretty strong movement, a pretty strong acceleration in the polls over the last couple of weeks, so much so that they've had their leader, Giorgia Maloney, on the front cover of The Spectator last week. So she and her party are really starting to, to gain some attention. So, Mr. Palmer, this we've talked a lot about just how much the climate in Europe is kind of favoring these more extremist parties. Uh what is 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 this uh, kind of right in line with that overarching trend that we've seen in Europe? It does go back and forth, but it, this is, seems like uh, probably one of the most eye-popping instances of of a party of this ilk uh, gaining this kind of popularity. And what does it mean for this to be happening in Italy? Yeah, I, I think both of those are excellent questions. I think it's. There, it's, Italy seems like there are a few steps even along on this trend, or they're reaching a new phase in this trend that we haven't seen as much in other European countries, where mainstream politics totally fails. And so people start going for parties that were nothing before, these new fringe parties, and they embrace them. But the thing is, that's kind of old news in, in Italy. That was the last, you know, the kind of the previous generation of politics. 
you had people like Matteo Salvini and you had the five star movement that came from nowhere, but they failed. You know, govern it, it point, pointing out problems is easy. Governing is hard. Right. And fixing the problems is hard. So now it seems like, well, we're in the, we're kind of moving on from one round of fringe groups to the next round of fringe groups. And I think the way that this is happening in Italy shows us a lot about this broader trend throughout Europe where, okay, well, one fringe group fails. Well, now we're going to go to the, the, the successes of the fascist party. You know, okay, well, maybe those fringe groups weren't fringe enough and we need to kind of go a step more extreme. Now, I, I think it's important to point out that there is, like so many on the far right, there is kind of a, a uh, vague relationship with the fascist party when it comes to the brothers of Italy, where you know, Giorgio Meloni will will completely disavow fascism in much the same way that Marine Le Pen will tell you that her political party has changed. Meanwhile, you'll still see party members doing fascist salutes uh, and celebrating Mussolini's birthday. And they kind of, it's, it's a having cake and eat it kind of thing where they try to tell the general public, you know, don't worry, don't be scared of us. Yes, we're different, uh, but we're not, we're, not, we're not quite Mussolini. And then telling the people that kind of want Mussolini, yeah, we're, we're, we're happy with Mussolini. Uh, but it's a, um, what you're getting in this trend is it, it's that you're seeing in Italy that's remarkable, I think is twofold. It's firstly, it's, the, a massive leadership crisis in Europe where they just really don't know who to look to. They tried the mainstream politicians. They failed. They threw them in the bin. They tried a whole new set of fringe politicians. They failed. It gives you a sense of just the acuteness of the leadership crisis that's building everywhere. And then you have you know, Italy forged a, or kind of blazed a trail in the 1930s where you had Mussolini come along and form a relationship with the Catholic Church. And he publicly came along and said and talked about reviving the Holy Roman Empire. And he called his empire the Roman Empire. And he went and you know, he brought in kind of Roman salutes and Roman eagles and all of this kind of thing. And what he was doing was fulfilling a Bible prophecy that you would have. Revelation 17 talks about seven resurrections of this Roman Empire, of an empire that has a relationship or is led by a woman, which is a, a symbol, biblical symbolism for a church. So this is what Mussolini did. He played a key role in resurrecting the Holy Roman Empire. He helped kind of blaze a trail that Adolf Hitler then followed and became the head of that Holy Roman Empire. Now you've got Italy kind of exploring the same role. And even though uh, Giorgio Meloni would kind of disavow publicly a lot of those fascism links, she certainly has some of the same rhetoric about the Catholic Church. And one of her most famous quotes was when she was she was giving you know, she shouted at kind of at the top of her voice at a rally. They want to call us parent one and parent two gender LGBT citizen X with code numbers. But we are not code numbers and we will defend our identity. I am Georgia. I am a woman. I am a mother. I am Italian. I am a Christian. You will not take that away from me. And there's a lot to like about that that kind of passion and what she's saying. But you can see there's a very strong Christian identity as part of her party. And Matteo mm. Salvini, one of her coalition members, is exactly the same. And there's certainly that basic template of a relationship between the church and the state is something that these people are very much on board with. And yes, while it, we, it is very easy to agree with all of that, and she was invited to speak at CPAC over the summer, 
the Bible warns us that where this this re- this seventh resurrection is going to follow, it's going to go into the same direction as Mussolini and as Adolf Hitler, because it's in a very real sense a continuation of that exact same empire. Yeah, what the Bible prophesies about the direction that uh, this trend in Italy and more broadly within Europe uh, truly is worth studying. We have a a, a whole book uh, that uh, was written in part by Mr. Palmer, The Holy Roman Empire in Prophecy, that explains this in detail. It goes through the history, uh, not just of Mussolini, but of the Holy Roman Empire further back in history. Uh, it's really uh, worth studying that. We'll link to that in the show notes, and I would encourage you to to get that book. And we will keep our eyes on how this unfolds next month in Italy. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. There's also a political crisis unfolding in Iraq, where the government has been deadlocked since last October because of a feud between the country's two largest Shiite groups. Who will come out on top? To give us the answer, we'll turn to Joshua Taylor. Yeah, so the feud that's going on is between two groups. So that first group is a populist ultra-nationalist cleric, Maqtada al-Sadar. Now, he's very, uh, as I said, nationalist, so he's very much against the United States and against Iranian influence, presumably, in the country. And he's also uh, shown himself as a, or presented himself as an anti-corruption official. And this is very popular with the Shiite underclass and the poor. And then we have on the other side, the pro-Iranian alliance called the uh, Coordination Framework, led by his longtime rival and ex-prime minister of Iraq, uh, al-Maliki. Now, where this basically started was Sadar won the election. So they have a very uh, parliamentary system in Iraq. So he his party won the most seats. They were given the mandate to form a government. And uh, al-Maliki and his Coordination Framework use their control over government uh, offices and ministries to block his ability to create that government. And so, again, he's just coming, uh, al-Sadar has been very much vocal about this kind of corruption and the corruption within Iraq, and he's got a huge following because of it. Now, more recently, uh, he called, on June 13th, he called his uh, followers to uh, withdraw from the uh, parliament, which they did, the framework then filled those seats with their followers and tried to form a government. And in response, Sadar called on his supporters to storm the judiciary building and storm the parliament building and occupy it. So in which they've done. So that's kind of the impasse where we're at. Now, as I said, uh, Al Sadar comes off and in the media is being uh, portrayed as an anti-Iranian uh, anti-American Which, that's cleric. very interesting, because this guy's been around for a long time, and uh, he's definitely... Uh, he, I, I've never heard of him as being anti-Iran, anything but pro-Iran, at least uh, some years ago. Yeah. Uh, some years ago, uh, when the United States first overthrew Saddam Hussein, he formed a militia group to attack the U.S., to, res- to resist against them, and a lot of that group had training from Iran directly, and just on top of that, he's visited Iran multiple times for religious reasons, family yeah. reasons. He's met with the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, he's met with the Quds Force Commander. He's very deeply connected with Iran. And I think a great way to just illustrate his ties is a quote from uh, Shayan Talbani, an analyst for the Tony Blair Institute of Global Change. She writes, there is no doubt that Sadar has played the nationalist card in recent years. However, Like many of Iraq's political power brokers, 
His relationship with Iran is complex and multifaceted. And then she goes on to say, Sadar stands up rhetorically against Iran because that matches the popular mood. But in reality, Sadar is as close as anyone to it. Sadar is not anti-Iran. He just wants to be the primary figure Iranians and everyone else has to deal with. So at the end of the day, regardless of whether this the framework uh, is manages to form a government or whether Sadar is able to get this overturned, at the end of the day, Iran's the real winner because yeah. Iran's got control over both of these groups. So we've talked about this for years. I mean, back to 2003, when our editor in chief was uh, writing about uh, the United States taking Saddam Hussein out. Iran was going to be the beneficiary. Uh, we have not changed from that. It's been nearly 20 years since he first said that. But what we're seeing still Iran in pole position to be able to take over Iraq, just as prophecy said. Absolutely. Right from the beginning, Mr. Flurry has been saying that Iraq was going to fall to Iran. Uh, when the United States invaded Iraq, he was still saying it. And in our, our pretty much our landmark uh, book in regards to the Middle East, The King of the South, uh, this is after the in, uh, invasion, he writes, of course, the Shiites control Iran and are a majority, 60% in Iraq. The U.S.'s removal of Saddam Hussein in 2003 opened the way for Iran to heavily infiltrate Iraq. And then further on, he writes, the U.S. effectively cleared the way for Shiite Iran to control Shiite Iraq. Mm -hmm. And we've just seen that in Bible prophecy, which he bases he bases all of his predictions in the Middle East on Bible prophecy. And just time and time again, we see Mr. Flurry uh, just being right every single time whenever he makes a forecaster prediction. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Taylor. Uh, we will link to his booklet, The King of the South, in the show notes that uh, talks about this in more detail and also, Josh has an article coming up uh, on the website soon, who will come out on top of Iraq's political crisis. You can watch for that at thetrumpet.com. The man in America who is the public face of the coronavirus pandemic more than any other, Dr. Anthony Fauci, announced he is going to retire. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, that's right. We just found out this week that after 50 years of uh, work in the federal government, Dr. Fauci is going to retire in December, uh, spend some time at home and enjoy his cushy $350,000 a year retirement package. Not too shabby. So not too shabby, not too shabby retirement. Almost, I think he makes 450000 now he's the highest paid government employee so he won't be after his retirement but he's still still do a, a pretty good retirement which is a uh, which is kind of sad in the way cuz like you said he is really kind of the face of not just the the coronavirus crisis but really the mishandling of the coronavirus crisis and though uh, and though Dr Fauci has denied this this week um a lot of republicans are probably on to something when they uh expect that he's a uh, this is probably a good sign for their chances in the midterm elections. Uh, it seems like he's uh, trying to get while the while the getting's good because uh, Senator Rand Paul and others have been accusing him for months of lying to the American people on the origins of COVID-19 and trying to investigate him. So far, they haven't been able to do much investigating because the Democrats control Congress. And so the fact that Fauci is retiring in December, about a month after the midterm elections, uh, 
could be a pretty good indication that uh, both he and a lot of other people expect the Republicans to do well in the midterms uh, and figuring it might be time to get out of the government before they um, start doing some intensive investigation into his role into COVID-19. Actually, Kevin McCarthy, who who he's um, like the House Minority Leader now, he's, ho- he's hoping to be a House Majority Leader if the Republicans take back the House. Uh, and so uh, he's... Um, He's pretty much came up and promised that he's like, oh, yeah, he's like, if you told the American people that if you vote, vote Republican this fall uh, and uh, and get me back in a position of power, uh, we definitely are going to step up our investigations into the origin of COVID-19. And uh, those investigations are good. This is actually one of the most saddest and funniest news stories I heard this week is there was actually... um, a committee in Congress, actually a Democrat-controlled committee, that's now saying that the uh, adverse effects from the mRNA vaccine that they're using to inoculate people against COVID-19 are because Donald Trump pressured them into rushing that out too quickly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's what it was. Yeah, uh, that makes perfect sense. It's, and, They've and, been against this vaccine thing all along. Like, Donald <laughs> Trump was the one who... <laughs> It was pushing that. It's like you might be able to make a case that Donald Trump was too pro-vaccine during his administration, but you can't make a case that he was more pro-vaccine than the Democrats at the time. Because Dr. Fauci was spending the whole time talking about how this is like the safest vaccine and everyone needs to get the jab and then the double jab and then the double jab with the booster and then the double jab with the double booster and then the double jab with the tripper booster (laughs) and then wear a mask and then wear two masks and then wear three masks. Uh, And so now if the, if the Democrats are finally owning up to the fact that over a million people have had at least that the CDC knows about over a million people, like 1.3 million people in the CDC's database are reporting adverse effects to this vaccine because it was not tested. Uh, that's what Dr. Um, uh, Rand Paul's talking about is that, and others that they said there's even many top doctors in America's health agencies saying that this is like a nightmare they're watching slowly before their eyes because like they're, they're, they were trained to have all these fail checks and safety checks mm-hmm. on how to do a vaccine. And the, the higher ups from like Fauci's office are telling them, don't worry about that, just rush it out. And so they rushed this thing out that made billions of dollars for big pharma uh, they created a public health crisis that's probably going to be worse than the coronavirus itself with their vaccine. The data is now coming out, so uh, the it seems like the, uh, the the new playbook is Dr. Fauci needs to retire while he can, uh, as the Democrats pivot to the fact that like, well, this was really something that Trump forced us to do against our will all along. Yeah, I, you make a good point that that this is quite extraordinary that they've come to the point where enough information is out there that they're having to change the narrative. They're 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 actually having to say no, this isn't this wasn't a good idea. Uh, you know, the fact that they're they're acknowledging that there really is a problem here and that they're blaming it on Trump is 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 one thing, but just looking at the fact that they are acknowledging that. It's quite extraordinary. I, I, I think we, we keep talking about this age of exposure. And you would presume that once, if, uh, if it does happen, that the Republicans are able to take control of Congress, at least the Senate, that, that, this, that there would be a lot more of this information coming out in, in public view. 
Right, right. And it's definitely par for the course for these radical Democrats. I remember back, um, I think it was during just after the lockdowns where they, they was trying to make the case that like, well, coronavirus spread throughout the United States too fast because Trump didn't lock down the border soon enough. And then you're like, OK, yeah, they, I remember back a few months and that's exactly what you were saying is that you Democrats just can't shut up about how Trump's too lax on border security. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, obviously, at the time, it's like they, they're always against locking down the border. And so then they change the narrative. And now it looks like they're going to change uh, the narrative again, because we are really in this age of exposure. That's actually uh, the article we thought to put in the show notes. It's a trumpet brief by our executive editor, Mr. Stephen Fleur, titled The Greatest Crime in History. Uh, and it really goes through a, a lot of information that Tucker Carlson was exposing uh, last month about how... Uh, the coronavirus crisis, it is really probably one of the worst things to happen to America in our lifetime, just about the added $6 trillion to the national debt, and it uh, made unemployment spike, and it created supply chain shortages, and it uh, separated people in their house, caused mental health problems, caused obesity, caused drug, drug addiction to go up, and just about every bad thing you can think happened revolved to this coronavirus crisis. And now there's more bad things on top of that due to the vaccine that came from the coronavirus crisis. And now the information is coming out that with the vaccine, it was Dr. Fauci's um, department, which was forcing these people to uh, ignore the safety checks for the vaccine development. And also Dr. Fauci's department that was funding the vaccine research in Wuhan that 99% chance created the coronavirus in the first place. Uh, We've covered that before. They wanted to make a vaccine to like, well, what if a coronavirus infected a human? But coronaviruses can't. The coronavirus they were studying couldn't affect humans. So they actually like spliced part of a bat coronavirus onto a mouse coronavirus in order to be able to infect a cell, infect human cells that they could use to make a vaccine. And then <laughs> all indications we have right now is uh, one of those genetic splicing experiments leaked out and uh, basically created a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I guess in addition to that greatest crime in history, we should probably put the uh, Appendix C from Mr. Gerald Flurry's New America Under Attack booklet. Uh, I think it's titled Was the Coronavirus Crisis Engineered? Mm -hmm. uh, but it has uh, the full rundown of all the evidence that uh, not only did the coronavirus originate in Wuhan, uh, and not only was it designed with help from Dr. Fauci, an American scientist, uh, but even floating the idea that given how much this has helped the Democrats with mail-in ballots and stuff like that, it could have even been deliberate. Mm -hmm. Very good. We will link to those uh, articles and, and that index in the show notes. The greatest crime in history. Go check it out. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour coming up. China's cutting edge new submarine. America lashing out at Iran as negotiations over the nuclear deal wind down. We'll also talk about the staggering number of immigrants who've come into the United States since Joe Biden assumed the presidency. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. China continues to expand its military and modernize its forces. 
It's growing its naval fleet with a newly acquired cutting-edge submarine. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, a new report this week from Voice of America goes into what I think is some really eye-popping details about China's fleet of military submarines. And it says that the size of the fleet now has reached, well, actually in 2020, it reached 66 and it's on track to hit 76 by 2030. So we don't know exactly where the number stands at present, but it's probably somewhere in the vicinity of 68 submarines that China currently has. And uh, many of these are the, the new Type 039s. These are next generation, almost silent vessels equipped with China's most advanced weaponry. So a very formidable and a, and a very stealthy model in war simulations, models like this have been shown to be able to hit United States aircraft carriers without even being detected. So these are just potentially devastating. The uh, former Deputy Undersecretary of the U.S. Navy, Seth Cropsey, has talked about this Chinese model, the, the Type 039, and he says, The submarine, because of its stealth, is well-suited to carry out a blockade or to protect surface ships that are being used for an amphibious assault, or to launch missiles in an invasion. So the submarine is an extremely important weapon platform. So, yeah, China has made just major progress with its submarine technology in recent years, and now it is building great numbers of them, the kinds of numbers that would have serious implications for any sort of future naval war. As China is doing this, the United States determination to maintain its presence in uh, Asia has been waning. Um, maybe you could just talk about the disparity between what China is doing and what America is doing. Yeah, there is a general trend in the U.S. where we're seeing just, you know, the broken will is being manifest more and more. And then even if you just look specifically at our submarine fleet here in the U.S. as compared to China's, there's also a worrying disparity there. Uh, the U.S. Navy released an analysis back in 2016, and it said that for America to maintain its undersea warfare advantage over rivals, then it would need to have at least 66 attack submarines. So that was 2016. America had several years to keep from being overtaken, but the U.S. apparently squandered that time. The most recent data shows that America has only 53 operational attack submarines. The uh, National Interest wrote about this. It said, America's submarine shortfall, which has been decades in the making, likely will get worse before it gets better. Even if the Navy could afford more subs, it lacks shipyards to build them. So, you know, you've got a situation where China is building more and more submarines and more advanced ones. And meanwhile, the U.S. is failing to build at a level that keeps pace. And, and this is shifting the scales for any sort of future naval battle. So talk about the uh, prophetic significance of China tightening its grip on the waters around China. Sure, yes. Uh, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry actually wrote an article in the August 2020 edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet. It's called, Where is the China-America Clash Leading? And he focuses a lot in that article on China's expanding naval power and the way China is using that power to take over sort of the, the waters in its vicinity, particularly the South China Sea. And Mr. Flurry looks at it all through the lens of Bible prophecy. He focuses especially on a prophecy in Deuteronomy 28, 
about the U.S. losing control over Seagate and shipping lanes that it once had and losing that control mainly to China. And so with China's Navy now becoming so powerful, as we see with this buildup of submarines, it looks like China will just keep on taking over this area more and more. And the South China Sea is, you know, it's a region that America kept open to world trade pretty much since the end of World War II. But now China is becoming more and more in control of that area. And Mr. Flurry's article shows that this shifting power balance there, it is fulfilling this prophecy in the book of Deuteronomy. So it's, I think it's a very important article for us to read as we see China's submarine fleet growing and its general naval power uh, just continuing to increase. Just quickly, uh, in light of all of the concern over what might happen with Taiwan uh, and China uh, making a, vil- a military invasion, how much does uh, submarine capability factor into uh, such a potential invasion? I think it would factor in a great deal. Um, you know, we, we just heard from that quote from Ben Cropsey. He talked about how vital submarines like these Type 039s especially that China has would be uh, in the event of some sort of military action, which we at this point fully expect China to eventually take against Taiwan. He said there that they could carry out a blockade. They could protect surface ships. They could also launch missiles. So they, I think, would be a huge part of an invasion like that. And meanwhile, Taiwan has, I believe it's only four submarines, you know, versus Mm -hmm. China's, we believe, 68 at this point. So just a, a vast disparity there. Taiwan would be utterly dependent on the United States to come and help it. And who knows how much help the U.S. would really give. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. Where is the China-America clash leading? That's the name of the article we'll link to in the show notes. We appreciate that, Mr. Jacques. Uh, As the negotiations over Iran's nuclear program wind down, tensions have increased and even violence has broken out between Iranian and American forces. For this, we'll go back to Joshua Taylor. So over the last half of this week, the U.S. has conducted multiple airstrikes against Iranian targets and Iranian militia targets in Syria. Now, uh, Biden said on Thursday that these airstrikes were carried out to protect and defend American personnel and stop attacks against the United States and its partners. A Pentagon also said that these attacks and these airstrikes were uh, in response to or were in retaliation to Iranian forces and their attacks that they've been launching against the U.S. and Syria. But if you combine these airstrikes and these military operations with other reports uh, coming out that talk about the United States and Israel uh, doing joint air drills, uh, simulating raids on Iranian territory. One report uh, that came out from a Syrian-based or a London-based Syrian uh, news site also claimed that Israel has been violating Iranian airspace over the last couple of months repeatedly and avoiding Russian radar and Iranian radar. You put this all together and you can see that it's not so much as a counter to what Iran's doing in Syria right now, as this is more of the U.S. trying to tell Iran, take this deal or else. Now, the unfortunate thing is that the United States is trying to show a backbone that it has been completely lacking over the entire period Biden's been in office. Uh, the Iranians have watched Biden cave into uh their demands repeatedly. They watched American weakness as the U.S. basically surrendered Afghanistan to the Taliban. Iran has watched and laughed as they've repeatedly attacked U.S. personnel and interests without repercussion for the most part. And they've even planned assassinations on United States soil, which we've seen even just earlier this month. 
the, at the end of the day, the Iranians do not fear the United States. They do not believe the U.S. has that backbone necessary to stop them from getting nuclear weapons. And they've watched as the United States' actions have proved this. The Iranians know that what we are seeing this week is just for show with the with as we talked about with the wind down of those nuclear talks. And as we've talked about on Trumpet Hour many times, the reason why we're seeing all this weakness from the United States right now isn't because this is Joe Biden's first term in office. It's because it's Barack Obama's third, as Mr. Gerald Flurry has pointed out multiple times in his articles and on his uh, program. And one of Obama's biggest foreign policy aims was to give Iran the bomb, was to support Iran and weaken the, uh, the United States' traditional allies like Saudi Arabia and Israel. And we're seeing this play out now. And that's why we're seeing the U.S. be so weak in regards to Iran getting the bomb or Iran's activities in the Middle East. It's an attack on America. It's the U.S. It's, or it's the Joe Biden uh, Joe Obama administration trying to blot out Israel, sharing the same goal as the mullahs in Tehran. Well, that is explained in Gerald Fleury's new book, America Under Attack. We'll link to that in the show notes, as well as an article that uh, Mr. Taylor wrote back in our May-June 2022 issue, The Worst American Foreign Policy Blunder 2, uh, speaking of these efforts to uh, resurrect the nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, so go check that out. Thank you very much, Mr. Taylor. We spoke in the first half about how Vladimir Putin is banking on Europe needing more Russian energy as we move into the colder months. Well, good news for Europeans. An impressive new gas field discovered in one of the 27 nations of the European Union. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, good news for the Europeans, but it's not quite that simple. So, uh, ENI and Total Two European Energy Giants, they announced, announced a major new natural gas discovery off the coast of Cyprus. Uh, they initially estimated it has 70 billion cubic meters of exploitable reserves, and this meets with two, or this joins two even larger gas fields that have been found off the coast of Cyprus. But this brings Europe more and more deeply into the Middle East. Getting these gas fields to Europe is not simple. Uh, and is going to involve a much bigger European presence in the Middle East. So there aren't any pipelines. There's no liquefied natural gas capacity in Cyprus at the moment, so they can't really get at this gas right now. But there's a project to build a pipeline to Egypt, and then Egypt has some uh, liquefied natural gas facilities. There's also a project to link up Israel with Cyprus, and then that to Greece. And there's even bigger gas pipelines in Israel, bring that into Europe. And again, that brings Europe much more in a much closer relationship to Israel than they've had using Israel as a kind of a key energy supplier. Um, so that puts them in a much more strategic situation. Uh, but that also Turkey, it kind of claims a lot of the waters around Cyprus and some of the areas where this pipeline goes through. So they'll have to try and deal with that too. Europe's interest in the Middle East is probably one of the most important prophetic uh, uh, trends that we see in end-time Bible prophecy uh, and some of the pillar prophecies that we're watching for involve European forces in that area in the world. Do you feel like what's happened here uh, could actually pave the way for some of those some of those incursions or at least that European presence to move down into that area more? I think so. And it's important to realize we're looking at just one part of a wider trend. 
mm-hmm. you know, Jeremiah talked about Russia and the, the big energy squeeze. And it's not just on oil. I mean, it's not just on gas. There's oil as well. There's uh, This is just one of many initiatives. You know, Europe's looking at North Africa and they're looking at, well, can we build a pipeline that goes across Nigeria up north into Algeria and bring more resources that way? Uh, you've got European leaders traveling to Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia and meeting with leaders. And you know, can we get more fuel from from people here? Can we get more liquefied natural gas? Can we get more oil? So all of this is p- pushing Europe to become much more dependent on the Middle East. They're already very dependent on the Middle East. But you take Russia out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so suddenly then the Middle East goes to become an absolutely dominant, super dominant source of European energy. Uh, it makes Europe much more reliant on some of these narrow choke points in the Middle East, like the Suez Canal. And so, as you alluded to, this really does bring in some key Bible prophecies into sharp focus, where uh, Daniel chapter 11 talks about this clash happening all across the Middle East. It singles out several countries, some in North Africa, some in the Middle East uh, itself, between this king of the South, which is radical Islam led by Iran, and Europe. And as you bring kind of Europe much closer to that king of the south through this, you then kind of also bring in a religious element like we talked about even in the first half, putting more of a focus on Jerusalem uh, and the plight of Christians in the Middle East. Uh, You really do set up this clash. And you can see how just even Europe being so much more energy dependent, the Bible in Daniel 11 talks about this king of the south pushing at Europe. And the opportunities to do that are so much greater when you've got a Europe really dependent on the Middle East for for energy. Uh, And then again, that all important religious dimension, too. So, yeah, it really does set up the the fulfillment of this dramatic clash. We have talked for quite some years, too, about Europe uh, kind of using Cyprus, this uh, this island base, almost like as a, a forward uh, launch point or, you know, a, 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 an aircraft carrier that's that's permanent there in the Mediterranean as a launching point to uh, incursions into the Holy Land, which is also uh, factors very prominently in Bible prophecy. Our editor-in-chief actually wrote an article back in our November-December 2019 issue, Why Germany Conquered Cyprus. That's actually the cover story of that issue that goes into quite a lot of detail about why this nation is so uh, so important to Europe's main players. Well, we will link to that in the show notes. Any others that you would uh, recommend to people, Mr. Palmer? Well, just the King of the South uh, to give that that overview as well. Okay. Very good. Thank you very much for that. One final story. As President Donald Trump was working to build a wall to stop immigration over America's southern border, that work stopped abruptly when Joe Biden took over, and it's been 18 months since then. What is the state of America's immigration problem for this? We'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, it's no exaggeration to say that Joe Biden is creating the worst migrant crisis in United States history. Uh, I've actually said that pro- this on this program before and it seems like i can now say it again every month as it gets worse and worse than <laughs> right. it was it was i don't know several months ago it surpassed the 1986 migrant crisis which was like the previous worst one uh-huh. so now every every new one that comes it's keeps getting uh keeps getting worse and getting worse but the numbers are truly uh truly shocking actually um there's a, a man, Dan Stein. He's the president for the, Federa- for the Federation of American Immigration Reform. And he issued an official statement on August 16th 
which where he said roughly the equivalent of the entire population of Ireland has illegally entered the United States in the 18 months President Biden has been in office, with many being released into American communities. In that time... The Biden administration has blamed an unprecedented surge of illegal immigration on all sorts of external factors, except their own sabotage of our nation's immigration laws. The endless flow of illegal aliens and the incursion of lethal narcotics pouring across our border will not end until this administration demonstrates a willingness to enforce our laws. And uh, he, he makes some good points there. Uh, just saying that like Biden, I mean, he's blamed Trump before he's blamed climate change before he's blamed political conditions in Central America before uh, he's denied that the migrant crisis has even happened before. Uh, it was he who stopped the building of the border wall. It was he who rescinded Title 42, which is a Trump era policy that allowed uh, America to deport migrants coming from places with covid uh, it's he who's using military planes and buses to actually take these migrants from overpacked migrant facilities into cities in the American interior. And so he's doing everything he can to encourage this, uh, encourage the migrant crisis. Like I said, it, so far it's been like, uh, like that Dan Stein said, like everyone in Ireland just crossed the border um, and getting worse. Uh, but this is something that uh, other analysts have really pointed out that the Democrats actually want. Uh, this is what um, Trevor Loudon, he's a, a communist expert, commonly writes for the Epoch Times, even though I don't think he works for them officially, where uh, he wrote this actually probably about a year ago, where he said, this is an orchestrated communist assault on America to destroy America's borders, to create confusion in America, to overwhelm the political system. You can see what 15, 16, 20, 25 million new Democratic voters is going to go do to the country. You'll lose Texas. You'll lose Florida. You'll lose Georgia. You'll lose Arizona. You'll lose North Carolina. There will never, ever be another Republican or conservative president in our lifetimes. You'll have a one-party state. That's the plan. And, uh, and what we've covered before on this show that prophecy indicates that that plan will be disrupted, uh, I think <laughs> Trevor Luden is right on the spot when he says, that is the plan. Mm -hmm. You bring in 25 million new uh, Central Americans who used to voting for or uh, living under Daniel Ortega, uh, then you've got even even if the uh, the president in America is a little more moderate than Daniel Ortega, you've got you've got a base that's used to your socialist policies that you can you can use to transform mm -hmm. the nation. For the show notes, we'll just put our editor-in-chief's new and expanded book, America Under Attack. He's got a, a section in there where he actually writes, he says, Today, many people recognize the immense threat posed by illegal immigration and the fact that radical leftists are actively fighting to change the country by it. This, this demographic transformation of the country's population has been underway for more than a generation. In fact, it began with the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act which granted amnesty to millions of illegal immigrants and liberalized America's immigration laws. And so that, that's kind of what I was talking about earlier when I mentioned 1986, is that that was previously the worst year until Biden took control, and now it's worse than it even was back then. Uh, but Mr. Floyd really points to that in this book as kind of this part of this uh, attack on America to, uh, to transform the country into a like, socialist nation from the inside out 
by just importing millions and millions of, of socialists from other countries to live here. All right. We appreciate that very much, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Joshua Taylor, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Adam Marshall. You only live once, but if you live it right, once is enough. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to trumpet hour on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg and online at kpcg.fm understand your world